Good morning and welcome to our Sunday service. Um, my name's Oliver Taylor. I'm a member of the preaching team here at Grace Vineyard. And whether you're someone new or you're a regular here, we're just so glad that you could join us in taking the time to meet with God, to hear his words and consider what he's saying to us today. As a church, we have been running small groups looking at Alexander Fenter's course, The Dance of Love, which we've been using to help us look again at what it means to live in community. And during our Sunday services, we have been looking at the Sermon on the Mount, which I'm going to try and continue with today. Today's message is entitled Learning to See Clearly. And we're going to look at a section of Matthew 7 from the beginning, which I would invite you to read along with if you've got a Bible to hand. But if not, not to worry, as you'll see the words on screen. But first, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have invited us in to be a member of your family, that you chose us not because we were perfect, but because you were perfect. We thank you that you make all things possible for us and ask that you would open our hearts to hear your words this morning. We believe that almost 2000 years ago, Jesus stood on a hill on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee between Capernaum and Gennesaret and spoke these words. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. In these verses, Jesus is warning us of a heart problem, a problem that causes us to be unable to see clearly what our neighbor is struggling with. And that heart problem undermines our ability to help them. The Greek word used here in Matthew is diablepo, which means to see accurately, comprehending the spiritual meaning behind the physical sight. Putting it another way, leaving our own faults untended undermines our ability to relate to others. You see, there is something about you and me, us and them, people of every creed and country that predisposes us to make judgments about other people. Some might speak up 
and openly condemn others, some might do it in hush whispers, and some might do it only in their mind. No matter how judgmental we might seem to an outsider, we are born with a nature that desires to pass judgment on others, to decide for ourselves what is good and what is evil. And it has been like that since we took the fruit from the tree in the Garden of Eden. When we become a follower of Jesus, we are born into a new nature. Jesus has cut a path for us that lead us out of the wilderness and away from the daily choices that defines our old life. And while we live in this place, we can be tempted back to our old life. But the tempter's power has been overthrown. We can wake up every morning and choose to follow Jesus and fulfill his purpose for our life. When we hear Jesus say, do not judge, we know that it is a command that we can follow because Jesus's words bring freedom. They do not condemn. In Matthew 16, Jesus says, if anyone come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. <coughs> Sorry. Um, taking up our cross, we must lay down everything that was not planned and purposed for us, all the things that we have taken from God that belong to him. Those things we must return, and that includes the responsibility for judgment. The right to judgment belongs to God alone because he is the only just judge. And we are actually so utterly incapable of judging fairly that in verse 3, Jesus explains that judgment aside, if we even try to give correction or criticism, to our neighbour without addressing our own faults, even in that we will fail. So where does that leave us? Postmodernism would tell us that no one holds the moral high ground. Each of us faces our own unique challenges. We should respect how each of us lives our own life. That worldview says that we should live and let live and let God sort it out in the end. The problem with that worldview is that it requires the plank in our eye can never be removed. It requires us to be broken people that will never be healed. And the trouble with that is that David wrote a psalm where he said, Lord, my God, I called to you for help and you healed me. You see, all those years ago, on the Mount of the Beatitudes, Jesus continued, ask 
and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asked for bread, would give him a stone? Or if he asked for fish, would give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. So how do we remove that log from our eye? We ask the God who is our healing, Yahweh Rapha. But this is more than just inner work. We are not just trying to retake the moral high ground so that we can be belligerent to others without fear of reprisal. Remember that Greek word, diablepo. This is what is at stake. Our ability to comprehend the spiritual meaning beyond the physical sight. Jesus is telling us that we will fail to love and have compassion for others until we lay down our hypocrisy. Anything that casts a shadow of doubt on our word, anything that prevents us from being authentic and earnest and compassionate creates a barrier between you and between me. This passage, this chapter, this sermon that, that Jesus is speaking is more than just the Son of Man cautioning us to behave better. I do not think it is simply an improved code of conduct for ourselves. After all, in Luke 11:46, Jesus condemns lawyers, not just generally, but for loading people up with burdens hard to bear more and more rules that they simply cannot live up to. This is an appeal to think not just about our relationship with God, but our relationship with each other. Now, the attentive among you may have realized that I've skipped a verse here, verse six, where it says, do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. In the NIV, verse 6 comes under the heading, judging others. And it's not difficult to understand why. But I think equally it belongs with ask, seek and knock. I think it belongs here because Jesus is not speaking about our relationship with God only, but also of our relationship with each other. Jesus's words come with a caution, a reminder that not everyone is on our side, but he is not saying that we are alone. 
God has established an order to all things. We only know the difference between good and evil because God has separated them. And so it is with community. There are, God, there are those that God has united us with and those that God has separated us from. Now I expect that most people have heard of the Hebrew word shalom. At its simplest, it means God's peace. But the word has a deeper meaning, which some people describe as um, living in harmony with the rhythm or order that God has ordained for our lives. I'm sure that, like me, you've all had moments in your life where you found yourself opposed to God's will. Perhaps it's a decision you made, or maybe a relationship that wasn't good for you. And you just simply weren't at peace. Maybe it was something that you weren't able to describe, that something just wasn't right. There are these moments that out, out of this lack of peace, we suddenly find ourselves being brought back into alignment with God's will for our life. Now, these can be painful moments, but as the pain subsides, it can literally feel like a weight being removed from our shoulders as we come back in step with his plan for our life. And we suddenly realize that we can breathe easy again. I wonder whether you've ever realized that God's plan for your life includes your community. It includes the people that God wants you to be in relationship with. That the peace that you're missing in your life is not something that you're doing wrong, but that there's someone missing. That God wants to make a move in your life through someone that you need to get to know or need to get to know again. I wonder how many people listening to this have ever gone to Mark or Jill or Mark and Chris or Sue and Andy or Rach and, and said to them, look, I've got this situation in my life, this thing that's right in front of me and I can't deal with it right now. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to get out of it. I don't know how to pray about it. I don't know how to make it go away. I don't know how to get back to where I was or where I need to be. I suspect that many of us have been in that position at one point or another. I certainly know that Sarah and I have been in that situation more than once. We are blessed with great leaders here at Grace Vineyard. But you know what? I think if you were to ask Mark and Jill what Grace Vineyard was really like when it was functioning and healthy and manifesting the glory of God, I think that they would say that those in trouble could ask for help and that they would receive it. 
that those who are alone could seek a friend and they would find it, that those in need could knock on the door and be welcomed in. I think that they would say that grace is at its best when the people of grace are living out the relationships that God has planned for their life and that they realize it's not just the leadership team who care for them, who want to help them, who want to welcome them in, but the whole church, because the whole church is manifesting the love of Jesus. But that can only happen if we're seeing clearly, if we are present with the people that are around us and give them the opportunity to ask, to seek and to knock. If we engage with them, if we listen, if we truly see what's going on, when we stop engaging with people, when we lose touch with what they're thinking and what they're feeling, when we stop having conversations with them, we can so easily slip into our old ways of judgment. Six months before lockdown started, Sarah had a miscarriage. Through it, my focus was on Sarah. I'm not sure that I really gave a thought for what I was feeling at that moment. And even though weeks after I managed to preach a message to the church, making it sound like I had everything under control, that I'd reached closure on it, I hadn't. In the months that followed, I was burdened with an anger that could find no resting place. And while I was writing this message, I found that in Job 29, there was a verse that summed it up for me. It says, how I long for the months gone by, for the days when God watched over me when his lamp shone on my head, and by his light I walked through darkness. You see, I felt like God had wronged me. I held him accountable for it all. By rights, I thought, he didn't have to do it. He didn't have to give us hope only to dash it against the rocks. And God wasn't the only one who had my anger, not by far. There have been plenty of people who have received the wrong end of my temper in this last year, and plenty more than just my temper. To my shame, I judged because people didn't have the right words to say, or they didn't do the right thing, or whatever it was that I expected them to do at the time. It was a terrible thing that happened, but I didn't see it clearly. I got so hung up on what happened that, that I failed to comprehend the spiritual reality of the situation. Now people say that anger is fear's protector, a defense mechanism that separates hope 
and despair. At that point in my life, my real fear was that it had been all a bit of a cruel joke. That despite all of my yearnings, our yearnings for a family, that there wasn't one coming. That one day I would just be at peace with all, but be left with a little thought that things hadn't quite turned out how they were meant to. We live in a culture here in Britain that is perhaps typified by disappointments. How do we greet others? How are you doing? Yeah, not too bad. Could be worse. It, it has become something of a joke, but the trouble is that when you let that sink in, when you let it permeate throughout your life, when you get sucked into this kind of enduring hopelessness, you don't realize that it is a lie. It is despair. It is sinful. And when we dwell in it, we are robbing God of his right and his responsibility of turning all things for our good. You know, in, in my situation, I wouldn't necessarily say that I was sitting in despair. But you know what? I definitely recognised its presence. In one of his letters, Peter says this. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is going through the same kind of sufferings. If I was seeing clearly, I would see that my spiritual reality was that the enemy was advancing on me. He had seen his opportunity and he was seizing it day after day. I was gradually becoming more and more helpless. And what's worse was that I didn't even realize it. When we are helpless, there is only one thing that we can do, and that is to be helped. As we were going through this, um, Sarah was far ahead of me. She recognised what I didn't, that we needed to be helped in a way that we could not help ourselves. There have been many people that have prayed for us over this past year, and Sarah and I are so grateful that so many people have shown us such love and kindness to us through a journey that has definitely taken its toll. In every season, there is a pivotal moment where God's grace is poured out and we are uprooted from one place and planted somewhere quite different. And I think it is always at a point in time, at a place, 
where there is prayer going on. And for us, it was no different. And for us, it was the moment that Sarah asked Jill and Mark to pray for us. To pray for our situation, what we were going through, what we were feeling, what what we wanted and what we felt like we didn't have. Sarah and I were about as open as I think we were able to be. And we just laid everything out to Jill and Mark. And they prayed for us. Now, I'm not sure that I really recall anything out of the ordinary that day. But that night, Sarah had perhaps the most painful night that she can remember. And it is clear that something had happened. Within one week, Sarah was pregnant. Something that seemed almost an impossibility a week before. Not just because of what happened back then, but because we had been struggling with infertility. Sarah was on a waiting list for, for surgery, for endometriosis. And I also had had tests. There had been many tests over many, many months. And it seemed like what had happened all that time ago had, had been a fluke, had been a one-off. We, we were getting to the point where we didn't think it was just going to happen. And then it did. Now, just about a week and a half ago, Sarah had her 20-week scan. And we found out that we will be having a beautiful baby boy. News that we are so pleased with and so relieved about. And you know what? In, in all the weeks that followed, after Jill and Mark, they prayed for us. And those prayers were added to all of the prayers. I was consumed by the question, what was it that had happened? What was it that made the difference? And I think the conclusion that I've come to is that I simply don't know. And I'm not sure that I ever will. What I do know is that we watched God move us from one season to the next. That it began with us asking for help. That God's shalom in our lives in that moment required mending a relationship that had been neglected. So what was my takeaway from all of this? What, what is my message about? What does all of this mean? How does it tie together? For me, I think it is that Jesus wants us to see each other clearly. Not so that we can judge in ignorance, 
but so that we can love in knowledge of each other. And that love is a love of action, of conversation, of relationship. And it all begins with the hope and faith that when we ask, we will receive. That when we seek, we will find. And when we knock, the door will be open to us. Amen and God bless.